country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Gemma Purdy from the Australia Indonesia Centre. Today's topic, democracy for sale, elections, clientelism and patronage in Indonesian politics. To talk about his new co-authored book on this topic, we're joined by Ward Berenschot from the KITLV in Leiden. Hi Ward, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, congratulations on this wonderful new book with Ed Aspinall. It's such a great title, I have to say, A Democracy for Sale. I'm sure that's going to be eye-catching on the bookshelves. But before we get into the detail and the analysis, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about the research processes, because the research that went into this book is really exciting, I think. You have a large sample of interviews and surveys. Can you tell us how you went about conducting the research? So Edward Aspinall and I, we combined both material from fieldwork following election campaigns in different parts of Indonesia, on the one hand, with an expert survey. With this book, we wanted to sketch and, and research how informal dimensions of politics in Indonesia really works and what the character of election campaigns is and how exchanges of favor shape access to, to power and privileges in Indonesia. We felt that doing that systematically and to be able to sketch a real picture, we needed to combine different methods. On the one hand, I myself followed election campaigns in three provinces, in Banten, in, to be precise, in the city of Tangerang, in Lampung, in the South Sumatra, and in Central Kalimantan. And in each of these areas, I kind of immersed myself into a couple of networks of candidates and their campaign organizers and followed their activities throughout a year in which there were district head elections, parliamentary elections, and presidential elections. This was 2014. And at the same time, uh, Edward Aspinall roamed a bit more freely and he visited a lot of different areas also in eastern Indonesia for shorter visits but more areas. So that was the qualitative side of our research mm-hmm. where we really wanted to catch the stories of how it worked. Right. You had to kind of gain the trust of the candidates and they allowed you to shadow them in a way. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So the first part was always you know, trying to... Uh, get to know people and make sure they trusted us and let us not only be present at the election rallies, but also, you know, at the behind the doors, strategic meetings, discussions, the late night gossiping about who's supporting who and where does the money come from. That kind of side that is how usually campaign really works, but it's not in the newspapers. And that's what we try to do by really uh, yeah, following and, and being part of these campaign teams. So the second batch of material that we used in this book is an expert survey where we surveyed a little over 500 political observers in 38 districts throughout Indonesia about informal dimensions of politics, these exchanges and how uh, campaigns are organized. 
And the reason for us to do that was that we wanted to try to get a more systematic picture of how common informal dimensions such as vote buying are or exchanging jobs for electoral support or how often economic or businesses would get licenses in exchange for campaign donations, all these kinds of behind-the-doors deal-making, how common that really is and if it, if it differs across Indonesia. And we felt that the way to do that would be to really systematically collect assessments and judgments from people who follow politics for their work, who know a lot, have inside knowledge, and then see uh, how they perceive the politics in their area. So can you just maybe flesh out a little bit this term that you're using, informal politics, and what are some of the characteristics or what are the elements of informal politics that, that you're focusing on? Yeah, so well, informal politics refers to the use of personal connections to obtain power and privileges. And we use it particularly to describe and to talk to a term we use even more in the book, and that's the word clientelism, which has a bit of a technical ring to it, but it, it boils down to that it's the practice of exchanging personal favors for electoral support. So, for example, vote buying is an example of clientelism where candidates hand out money to voters in the expectation that they will then reciprocate with their vote. Mm. But clientelism also refers to, for example, promising a village to build a school if this village en masse votes for the candidate. Or, for example, when a business helps fund the election campaigns to then repay that favor by giving that business a license or a concession. Right. And so this kind of political clientelism, as you call it, it's it's not unique to Indonesia, right? This, this happens everywhere to some extent. Yes. I would actually even argue that it's, it's a very common form of what they call vote mobilization, so to get votes uh, to, to win elections as a strategy throughout the world. Actually, it's opposite twin, as you might say. We call sometimes programmatic campaigning, that is trying to get votes by offering campaign policy ideas, policies that you promise to implement at, when you get elected. Mm. We tend to see that as the normal or the right way of how politics should be done, which is a normative view. But if you look empirically, you might say that clientelistic way of appealing to voters might, if you look at South America, Africa, Asia, particularly, but also Eastern Europe, it might actually be a more common way of uh, appealing to voters. So this other term that goes hand in hand in your analysis with, with clientelism is patronage democracy to describe the system, the democratic system in Indonesia. Can you explain that one a little bit? Yeah, as you see, the challenge of studying informal dimension politics is it comes with all these words that we not yet very common that we try to describe these formal dimensions and patronize democracy is another one patronize is a word that refers to the use of state resources like jobs or contracts or access to welfare programs in a clientelistic way meaning in exchange for electoral support so a patronized democracy is a democracy where this is a very common way of appealing to voters so one of the main aims of our book was really to describe election campaigns in Indonesia, how they work, but also in a comparative way. So what is distinctive of how elections are organized in Indonesia and also the way in which clientelistic campaigning is organized? And what we found and what, what one of our main arguments in the book is that it takes a particular freewheeling form. And let me explain what we mean by that. 
I came to study Indonesia from studying elections in India. And when I first landed, starting from the very first day of my fieldwork, I was struck by a strong contrast between Indonesia and India. And that is that election campaigns in India are largely organized by political parties. And each candidate belongs to one party whose party workers organize an election campaign. While in Indonesia, candidates largely rely on something which they call team success or, or success team which are much more personal and very versatile networks of groups of people that candidates bring together, some people from political parties, but also friends, social organizations, religious organizations, uh, business associations, all sorts of people who come together to support a candidate. And that is what we call freewheeling clientelism. Because it's these networks that organize the kind of clientelistic exchanges, but in a much less fixed form and structured networks as you would see in a country like uh, India. Right. Really, really interesting. And so you're kind of heading into my next question. How is Indonesia's system different from other models or other patronage democracies? Yeah. So that to us was really interesting. What we wanted to do was not to see clientelism and and, and vote buying and all that as a kind of, you know, what is usually seen as a deviation from the system and as as how it should not work, but rather see if we look at it it themselves, what, what kind of characteristics does it have and how does it differ? We found basically three key characteristics of these informal domains of politics in Indonesia. One, I already mentioned, the limited role of political parties. Uh, But the second one, and it's related, is that in Indonesia, bureaucrats are very influential as political agents and as members of campaign teams and even campaign organizers, which is pretty unusual if you look at other countries where bureaucrats usually are marginal to actual election campaigns. Mm. But in Indonesia, they are usually most sought after people during campaign season, and with bureaucrats, I mean both actual bureaucrats like sub-district heads and or heads of, of departments, as well as state representatives like uh, village heads. Mm-hmm. What does that involvement look like? Well, the thing is, it's of a particular kind because officially bureaucrats are not allowed to support a candidate. So uh, you won't see them put on T-shirts of, uh, of a candidate or something. But what they do do is go around from door to door talk to people about their candidate and why he should be supported or giving certain hints that this person should be good, Mm -hmm. but also actually helping organizing campaign events in their village and things like that. And why they can do that? Because uh, they are the ones distributing a lot of the state resources and helping people get access to, say, um, welfare support from the government or paperwork done, Mm. which makes people grateful to them, but also fearful a little bit, which gives people a reason to follow the vote advice of bureaucrats. So that's the second uh, particular element. And the third one, what struck me as a surprising element of election campaigns in Indonesia is the very high degree of vote buying. So a lot of money goes around uh, at election campaigns. While what I saw, in, for example, in India, there's vote buying too, uh, also very common. But their candidates try to minimize that cost by being involved year-round, everyday basis in helping people in their constituency to get things done, to solve problems with the, with the government, to arrange things for the, for the area, uh, Uh, getting people in a good school or getting a hospital bed, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. 
which politicians in Indonesia cannot really do very well, at least so far, because bureaucrats are having the control over these things. And that's a key difference. We compare Indonesia with particularly with India and Argentina. And we found that in these countries, political parties have a much stronger control over the bureaucracy. So if, if a party worker says this person should get a hospital bed or should, that we should build a, uh, say, new street lighting in that neighborhood, mm. then it happens. While a particular heritage of Indonesia's new order of Indonesia's authoritarian period under Suharto is that bureaucrats maintain still quite some control over who gets what in Indonesia, who gets what resources. And political parties have not yet succeeded in establishing that kind of control that their, their peers in Argentina and India have. And that's a reason why the kind of clientelistic campaigns around providing access to resources is not yet very strong in Indonesia. And it means that particularly for those that are not incumbent, mm. politicians that are not yet in office, they are forced to rely much more on vote buying as a right. way or, uh, to connect with voters or hand out community gift speakers for mosques or Korans or dresses or different kind of gifts, which makes election campaigns in Indonesia very expensive. Right. So your findings were that more money is being spent to buy votes in Indonesia than you've encountered elsewhere. Yes, although I must say it's, of course, a difficult thing to quantify and to have put a clear figure on. But definitely having studied India, and I would say that election campaigns in Indonesia are more expensive due to the fact that candidates are more likely to resort to vote buying and handing out gifts to appeal to voters, mm. which is something that makes the elections very expensive. It's not new, right, in Indonesia? Has it been going on before Reformasi in, to some level or...? or really just started after the fall of the new order? No, during the new order, the staged elections at that time also had a very clientelistic feel to it. And Suharto relied more extensively on local bureaucrats as a way to mobilize people to vote for Golkar, Suharto's party at that time. But the character of elections really changed. During the new order, there wasn't much of an incentive to spread a lot of money to voters because they could be, well, compelled, let's say, or sometimes forced to vote for Golkar anyway because the village head could threaten to cut them off from access to state resources, for example. Mm. And now that threat is largely gone. And particularly challenges have no real control over state resources, so not something they can hand out. So as a result of these things, really, clientelism became massified and a lot more money and more resources are being spent during elections to appeal to voters, which is in some sense, very nice for voters. I mean, I, it's a very, it's a big downward transfer of wealth, basically, elections in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. But it also means that this is also a lot of money that needs to be recovered once these politicians are in power. And how does that work? How can the candidates compel, even though they've paid somebody to vote one, one way? Does it work? Do people vote a certain way because they were paid to do so? Well, it's a complex thing, and definitely it doesn't work as a market purchase, you know, like you, you go hand out money and then you're sure you, you get it back. Yeah. In um, that sense, vote buying is not a great term because it really uh, suggests a purchase, which it isn't. It's more that candidates appeal to certain norms of reciprocity and people's sense of doing the right thing so that by handing out money, you oblige people to, to return the favor election day. But they also know that other candidates also hand out money and that people are very likely to take money from different sides and then still vote whoever they want to. So a lot of the actual gains 
doing or the strategizing of election campaigns goes around minimizing that problem. And that they do by getting people into their campaign team who have some sort of hold or influence in the community. Right. That by getting support from, for example, a village head or a neighborhood head, candidates get somebody on board to whom local voters have some sort of sense of obligation or mm-hmm. some sense of shame if they don't wouldn't vote for their candidate if they got money. Basically, what good election strategizing in Indonesia amounts to is really latching on to social bonds of obligations that already exists between people and using that as a means to make vote buying work. It's really extremely complex, isn't it? I mean, this is what you're outlining here and and you and Ed have described it as a culturalist approach to clientelism that has maybe been missing from, as you were saying, the kind of more market analysis of the transactions going on here. So perhaps take us back a little bit to the political parties You said that one of the characteristics of Indonesia's particular model of patronage democracy is the limited role of political parties, which is really interesting for observers, I think, from particularly from outside Indonesia, who, as you were saying, understand democracy, you know, very much based on competition between political parties. So what is the role of political parties in Indonesia's system currently? Well, they're clearly not uh, irrelevant. They play an important role, particularly as gatekeepers. And we should distinguish also their role at the national level, where their role is a bit bigger, and in local elections like district head elections and local parliamentary elections. When we talk about district head elections, Indonesia's electoral system says that in order to run as a candidate, you have to have the support of political parties who have at least 20% of seats in local parliaments. And that kind of rule makes parties both weak and strong at the same time. It makes them strong because the support of parties is needed. You, you cannot be a candidate otherwise. So it gives parties some power to select who might be the next district head, for example. At the same time, it makes them weak also because that rule forces candidates to usually make coalitions between different parties. And that kind of coalition is usually often kind of bought. So people talk about a mahar politik or a political dowry, money that candidates, people who want to become, say, district head or also governor, uh, money that they have to give to parties in exchange for their support. And the problem for political parties with that is that After you've given out that money, basically the link between candidates and parties is not very strong. Mm. So there's very less obligations for a governor once elected to direct patronage and favors to parties and party networks Mm. because they already had their fill, so to say. Right. And with the political parties themselves, how important is the ideological position of the party? What you're describing is that candidates literally shop around and the parties shop around for candidates as well. So that sense of having a particular ideological position doesn't really hold. Yeah. Well, again, this might be a little bit different at the national level where you could still uh, attribute some sort of ideological profile to different parties, uh, you know, Islamic parties and more nationalist parties and secular parties. Mm. But what I found striking from studying more local politics is at that level, ideology plays a really minimal role. 
For example, we looked at these kind of coalitions that candidates for governor and district heads make, uh, and we wanted to know whether the parties that have that particular ideological profile, would they be more likely to uh, be in a coalition uh, with each other, uh, whether secular parties would be more likely to be together with other secular parties and Islamic parties more with Islamic parties, etc. Mm. And we found that that's not at all the case. Basically, every party is more or less equally likely to be in a coalition. And locally, it's a lot is pragmatism, yeah. uh, selecting a leader who might win, selecting a leader who might be willing to pay more money to, to the party, or selecting a leader with whom there are already good personal connections. That is very important. So locally, parties at the moment are not really playing that classical role that we see with parties as a mechanism for fostering policy ideas and proposals of how the government should be run. When there are new ideas, they usually come out of candidates themselves and not so much a, a party platform that fosters them. Right. And so when campaigning for the election, it, it's very much driven by the identity of the candidate, is that right? Yes, the identity and the character of the candidate as well as the network that he or she uh, has beneath the surface, so to say. And these candidates already have their personal connections and networks, sometimes to businesses, and that gives the campaign also a flavor where sometimes you see candidates supported by religious organizations and sometimes there are really mafia type of business coalitions that are behind certain candidates. That is also very important in the character of how local government functions after being elected. A large section of your book focuses on the variations across Indonesia in terms of how these clientelist practices occur. Can you speak to us a little bit about some of those variations? Yeah, so as I mentioned, one part of the research we did was an expert survey. And our reason to do that, to interview all these political observers across Indonesia, was to try to get at this question of, is the character of local politics, again, we focus mainly on district head and governor elections, the same across Indonesia, particularly when it comes to clientelism, or is there a big variation? So we asked these observers questions like, of all the big contracts that the local government hands out, in your perception, what percentage is awarded to businesses that have supported ruling politicians? Uh, so with that rewarded, that was really a, a reference to kind of a, an exchange of favors here, a clientelistic exchange. Mm. Or we asked, uh, of all the senior bureaucrats in the local government, what percentage, in your perception, had gotten that promotion as a reward for supporting the ruling politicians or the district head? So and with that, the political observers could say, well, 0 to 20 percent or 40 to 60 percent got the job thanks to supporting during election campaigns. Mm -hmm. So that allows us to put some sort of score on, on local politics because we ask different questions about different resources. And with that, we made what, what we call a clientelism perception index. So a, a perceived intensity of this kind of exchange of favor politics or transactional politics, as it's called in Indonesia. Yeah. And the result was both as expected as well as surprising at the same time. As expected because it confers longstanding, well, maybe prejudices about that politics in Java is likely different. But we found that the lowest intensity of clientelism politics is in Javanese cities as well as the countryside. Slightly higher scores in Sumatra and the highest scores in Kalimantan and eastern Indonesia. But the surprising bit uh, about these results was that it contradicted a bit the theories in the books about why clientelism is, uh, is expected to be common. 
The literature on clientelism says that clientelism is due to poverty and lack of education and general economic underdevelopment mm -hmm. because it makes voters more prone to those kind of inducements and favors and they won't be interested in things like policy and election programs. Right. But actually, the Javanese countryside, having a lot of unemployment and being relatively poor, low income, not very clientelistic. And yet some of the big cities outside Java having okay income or very high, being very clientelistic. So in the last chapters of the book, we use that to propose a different kind of argument of what is fostering clientelistic politics in Indonesia. And the argument basically is that it's about what we call concentrated economic control, meaning clientelism is more likely in areas where control over economic activities is concentrated in the hands of a narrow elite, being bureaucratic elites or economic elites. So that means areas where basically state budgets are the main source of income for many people or natural resource areas like Kalimantan. Both areas have in common that basically the game of winning elections and getting access to power is key for the livelihoods of many people, making elections a very closely fought over contest. And does that reflect what you found in your field sites, Banten and Lampung and in central Kalimantan as well, that kind of variation? Yes, and the fieldwork also helped explain why we found this, because we realized basically that that kind of economy, what I call concentrated control economies, are also economies where the scrutiny and disciplining of these political business elites is more limited and more difficult to organize, simply because, well, for a number of reasons, but one is that civil society is much less independent in, say, central Kalimantan. Most NGOs are called platmera, a red plate, which refers to the license plate of government cars, which is sad because of their funding structure. They get their money from latching on to government projects and they have very few access to outside donations of people who care for their work. Mm. And the same could be said about journalism, that if you open a, a newspaper in central Kalimantan, about one-fourth of the advertisement is from local government sources, which meant that if I interview uh, journalists, they would regularly tell stories of how they got an, an intervention from the editor who said, well, yes, you wrote a very nice critical piece, but that would get us in trouble with, say, the, the district head or other politicians mm -hmm. who would then threaten to withdraw their advertisement. Right. So for those kind of mechanisms, it's that the character of the economy is really linked to the freedom that politicians have to engage in these kind of clientelistic uh, exchanges. So you're describing quite a challenging environment for an intensification of democratization in Indonesia. What do you see are the toughest challenges? Yeah, well, I think Indonesia's democratization process is not likely to be a process from moving directly away from these kind of clientistic practices and, yeah. and that democratization will be the same. It's more likely that clientism itself will be uh, democratized, meaning that the benefits that people draw from it will be more uh, widely shared and more equally shared right. before a kind of more programmatic kind of politics that we associate with democracy is likely to emerge. Mm -hmm. But related to this, I, I do want to mention a couple of downsides of the kind of politics that we discuss in the book. And one obvious one is the role of money. It's not for nothing that we call the book Democracy for Sale, because these clientelistic practices, but also the nature of election campaigns in Indonesia, is making elections so expensive that it not only fosters corruption, 
but also it means that the wealthy people who already have money are more likely to win elections yeah. as well as more likely to influence policy and how governments work. And that is a big challenge that Indonesia faces because uh, not only does it weaken the quality of government, but also it weakens the trust in government. And a phenomenon like you see in, in uh, Philippines where Duterte gets elected out of a wave of annoyance with politics as usual mm. is not around the corner in Indonesia. But because of this kind of politics, it is not unlikely to happen in, say, 10 or 20 years. One observation in the book which I found really interesting was that most of your interviewees, even though they were very upfront and frank about engaging in these practices and how it was very much necessary in order to run their campaigns and to represent their constituency, that you observe also they had misgivings about the system and what they do. Can you say a little bit more about their responses? Yes. Yeah, I would almost call it annoyance of these political elites with the actual political system, which is ironic in the sense that, so we, we interview these politicians and they are the people that most benefit from the system in the sense that you know, they get elected and then they get a lot of spoils of office. But at the same time, having studied these elections, you do feel for them, kind of. Because right. if you are a politician in Indonesia, you have to gamble, particularly if you're a local one, you have to gamble in quite a big way. You have to spend money to become a candidate. You have to spend money to build a campaign team. And then you have to spend money to, to buy votes without knowing whether you will actually get elected because you know your candidates will do the same. Mm. So, you know, we usually see these clientistic practices as something that, you know, is, is only a cunning strategy from plotting politicians. But in the view of those politicians, it's also something that's imposed on them and that they don't really like themselves. In that sense, they feel prisoner of the system right. as much as we would feel that voters are. Right. So they feel helpless, you know, a sense that there is no changing it. Yes. I think you could fairly describe the pattern of politics that we discuss in the book as a kind of collective action problem, meaning that all the actors, whether voters, politicians or bureaucrats, they would want to get out of that money cycle and vote buying, etc. But for each of them individually to do so, the cost would be too high. For a politician, for example, to say, I'm not going to do vote buying or I'm not going to buy the support of political parties or I'm just going to focus on uh, conveying my visi.missi, my election program, mm. uh, that's a very risky thing to do, uh, with the exception perhaps of a few cities in Java. In other areas, you're very unlikely to, to get elected. Were there any examples of candidates that you, you found who took that risk? Well, in Tangerang, which is this more diversified economy, with a lot of industries, there was a losing candidate who did convey a vision about where Tangerang should go. To be more precise, our discussion about this clientelistic informal dimension of politics should not lead to the misunderstanding that programs, proposals are irrelevant in politics in Indonesia, because you do see particularly around things like uh, healthcare programs or welfare support, you do see candidates trying to promote something which is like a program. But it's more like that candidates realize that you need to do both. You have to have that vision and that idea of policy proposals that you want to implement, mm -hmm. combined with having a good team, strong on the ground, willing and capable of handing out money in a way that it obliges people to vote for them.
The Economist recently released its Democracy Index and it found that overall globally on its various indicators there had been a fall in most of those indicators except an increase in political participation. Who's participating in politics in Indonesia today and in what ways are they participating? Because we're talking about this system where the voter to some extent has agency in that they are part of the system, can make their own decisions about where their vote goes, etc. But are there other ways that people are participating in politics? Yes, well, I think this is, for me, was the more optimistic side also of the fieldwork to see that voters are far from passive victims of the system or something. Yeah. And well, many of them pragmatically play the system. I mentioned some of those things that they, they get, they take money vote buying from all candidates. And also they, they pressurize candidates to deliver resources and favors to them or jobs to their family members, things like that. And in that way, they do pressurize candidates to deliver, even if it's a clientelistic benefit, at least they do put pressure on candidates to deliver something which was far from that strong during the new order. But you also see, at least in Java, but I would say elsewhere, also a clear interest in supporting politicians that do things differently. The popularity and position currently of, of politicians like Rismawati, but also the rise of politicians like Jokowi or Iba Kamil in Bandung. These are examples of politicians that try to do things differently and that were able to do so because people rallied behind them and liked what they were doing. In that sense, there is some public participation that is some force against politics as usual as the kind of deal-making, transactional politics that I described. So that's the optimistic side, although we shouldn't overestimate their influence of that kind of participation as yet. Right. Well, we always like to end on a slightly optimistic note here at Talking Indonesia. So even though you've <laughs> qualified it, I'm going to take that <laughs> and say well, thank you. And say yeah. thank you very, very much for giving us your time and good luck with the book and we'll recommend it to our listeners. Thank you for having me. It was thank a pleasure. You. That was Ward Berenshot from the KLTLV, Leiden University. Ward's co-authored book with Edward Aspinall is Democracy for Sale, Elections, Clientelism and the State in Indonesia, published by Cornell University Press and in Indonesian translation with Obor Publishing. Talking Indonesia will return on the 14th of February, hosted by Dirk Thompson. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.